1: Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac!
2: You blew it up!
1: Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Krikori, an executive director of the Center. And joining us this week is Todd Benzman, a senior national security fellow here at the Center. And specifically, what I wanted to talk about was his uh, sojourn in Europe last year. He had a brief fellowship. He'll tell us a little bit about that to see what's going on with regard to border control in Eastern Europe. And we're also releasing a video that he made of the time he was there, plus links to some articles he's written at other websites based on some of his reporting in Europe. So Todd, thanks for joining us. And first of all, what were you doing in Europe?
0: Right. So this was a uh, visiting fellowship with a kind of a uh, sister immigration studies group based out of Budapest called the Migration Research Institute. They brought me into Hungary. I was kind of based out of Budapest, but with a kind of a wide area of operation in which I took full advantage of to kind of travel throughout the region checking out borders, and studying the immigration situation there.
1: How many countries did you end up visiting?
0: I ended up uh, moving through eight different countries, mm-hmm. including Hungary, Croatia, Bosnia, Serbia, Kosovo, Macedonia, Romania, and uh, even Greece crossed over the border for a day in, in the northern Greece.
1: And you were in Poland as well.
0: And Oh, yes. And of course, Poland. We can't forget Poland up on the north.
1: Right. So I guess maybe we'll start talking about the general context of what's going on over there. They have a new EU agreement about migration and asylum. What's the story with that? And then there's a couple of interesting places you actually went to that I'd like to hear about, too.
0: Sure. Well, the context of all this is that, you know, this is an election year, a pretty big election year for a lot of the EU countries the elections are happening at a time of really significantly swelling illegal immigration again mm-hmm. into the EU which is on a par with its you know peak of the last mass migration crisis there in 2015 and 2016
2: mm-hmm.
0: nothing like our own border of course but for the Europeans seeing Three hundred and eighty thousand detections at the external borders of the eu really kind of has ruffled the feathers again politically all over the eu
1: and that's three hundred eighty six thousand in a in a whole year, right yeah, whereas we had three hundred thousand just in the month of December
0: <laughs> yes, but you know remember those are just the number that were detected mm-hmm. the number of asylum seekers. In the EU is close to a million during the same period of time, which tells you that far more are actually crossing undetected into the EU than than are detected. I so see. Three hundred eighty thousand really is kind of a an undercount, or it's just an indication of far greater numbers.
1: Right. So, what does this migration pact do?
0: Okay. So the EU was when I was there in November and December. They were debating this. They're going back and forth. This is called the New Pact on Migration and Asylum. This is to be a universal set of rules and regulations by which all 27 of the EU countries would abide every time certain circumstances arise, like, you know, 380,000 coming in and a whole bunch of asylum seekers, many of whom are not deported. It's sort of to get all of the EU countries on the same page for how to handle immigrants. And it's sometimes pitched as something very kind of tough and deterring on the immigration coming through the EU, which is the dynamics, by the way, are very similar to everything that we see here in the U.S., which is that when you catch and release, as a lot of the liberal governments do when immigrants reach their soil, they catch and release them on asylum claims and then never deport them, right. which they don't, then that's sort of the pull factor, the big magnetic tractor beam pull that's going on. And that most definitely is happening. The pact is supposed to provide kind of an anecdote for that to allow or even require countries to start deporting. People, especially certain people from Middle Eastern countries and from Muslim majority countries, that might pose a security threat. It's not fully ratified yet. Where it's been approved, but then there are these other sort of bureaucratic, uh, you know, these bodies that you know it has to go through still, and all all of the different individual nations have to ratify it.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I'm told that that's not going to be a big problem, but part of the issue with the rules and the regulations that are proposed is that they kind of let each country decide the extent to which they're going to enforce any of these things. Right. So if you've got a liberal government, they kind of have the option to not enforce on deportations of, you know, the Muslim majority countries, you know, ones that are coming from those countries.
1: And in the meantime, if there are illegal aliens in those countries, they get to move anywhere within the EU they want.
0: That's also true. Now, they may have to keep their cases in the first country that they entered, but right. they can also just disappear. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you know, you don't know where. It's just very similar to our own circumstance. Another of the regulations in this thing would do what we do here, which is to let all unaccompanied minors in without exception and without question. Everybody gets in. And family groups, the same. All family groups would be allowed in with very limited detention periods, and I think we know very well what happens when we do that here at our own border. Mm-hmm. I don't know if the Europeans were watching us, what happens when we release family units into the country on asylum claims. You get millions and millions of them pouring in over that. Well, that's one of the regulations in the new pact Interesting. Uh, that's being proposed, so They think, or they're saying during an election season, of course, where populations in the European theater are increasingly moving to the right politically, Mm -hmm. going for parties that are promising real deterrence, real deportations, and real detention for long periods of time, we're starting to see the pact, I think, used as a political vehicle by the liberal governments to sound tough, but when you really dig into the details of this thing, there's a whole lot of wriggle room and lots of loopholes in there that I'm sure that they'll all find.
1: Yeah. You'd mentioned that, you know, once people get in, it's hard to deport them, or at least Europe chooses not to. There was something that the president of Finland said in this regard uh, a couple months ago. He said, quote, deportation of migrants who don't meet the criteria for asylum has become impossible. So entering the border means you stay in the country if you want to, end quote. And he was really just saying something that everybody kind of knows. And that's actually relevant to one of the places you went. You visited Poland, which borders on mainly on Belarus, and that there was an issue a couple of years ago where Belarus was basically trying to push Middle Eastern illegals over the border into Poland as kind of a political punishment for sanctions against them. The point being, once they get in there, Europe is stuck with them. And so you went and visited somewhere on the Polish border, and uh, there's been a change of government and stuff. If you could tell us a little bit about what you saw in Poland and what seems to be going on.
0: Right. Well, the story of, of Poland, the poland Belarus border, the modern current story, anyway. There's a lot of stories about that border.
1: Yeah, well, from 100 years ago, but but, yeah, not now. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yeah. Yeah, it dates kind of about two and a half years ago when the hostile government of Belarus, which is aligned with Russia, as we all know, with Putin, wanted to get back at the EU over different grievances, and Poland especially. And so they purposefully brought in thousands and thousands of Muslim Immigrants, mostly Iraqis, mm-hmm. uh, but also you know lots of other ones, and they brought them into Minsk by air from Turkey. And once they were on the ground, and Minsk is only about forty or fifty miles from the Polish frontier in on the Belarus side. And then once they were there, they trucked in them and got them very helpfully all to the Polish border and tried to send them over to create a mass migration crisis mm-hmm. for the EU chaos, you know. The Polish government at the time was uh, a conservative government. It, it was opposed to having tens of thousands and then maybe hundreds of thousands and then millions pouring through its territory, and they fought back. They brought up tear gas, water cannon, billy clubs, and it was just a, a melee for many months. Mm-hmm. They stemmed the tide, and they built a 120-mile-long fence and militarized the whole zone all around the fence. It's a good fence. I went to the fence. All was quiet on the Western Front, so to speak, (laughs) when I was there. However, a liberal Polish government had just been elected, Mm -hmm. had just been seated with a new prime minister who's friendly toward immigrants, toward immigration, especially asylum seekers, and kind of hostile about the fence. He's kind of of the classic European liberal government mold, and so are a couple of the parties that are in his coalition there. The big sea change for Poland, this was just in October, one of the reasons why the fence works so well in Poland, and and this applies to our border very much, Mm -hmm. because walls by themselves, as you know, don't necessarily stem the tide. They help, they slow things down, but... You have to have policies behind them that involve pushing people back right away. And Poland was doing that. They'd always been doing that for two and a half years. And so, therefore, it was quiet on the Western Front Mm -hmm. over there. Donald Tusk, the new prime minister, said all throughout his campaign, we're not going to do pushbacks. Those pushbacks are cruel and inhumane. We've heard that a lot here. Right. All of this stuff is very familiar, just in a different it's a disfine like on Mars, but it's just the same. You know, there's nothing changes in the basic dynamics of illegal immigration and walls. But what we're waiting for and what the piece was that I wrote about is whether he's gonna follow through on letting people who cut that fence or climb over it Mm -hmm. and claim asylum stay. Because if he does that simple toggle. That little switch if he punches that button, right? Quietly, privately, then they will have a mass migration crisis. The Belarusians interestingly seem to recognize that this is the case because they reopened the air route from Turkey to Minsk again. Right, it was closed for two and a half years. Why would he do that? You know, why would? Well, they're really mad at Poland and the EU now because of the war in Ukraine and the EU support and would probably like nothing more than to create another mass migration crisis from Minsk. And so all of those dynamics and the politics and, you know, sort of the uncertainty of that kind of weaponized mass migration restarting was what I was there to see and what I wrote about. It was very interesting and rare also to get close to that fence. The Polish fence is militarized. Mm -hmm. The other side is militarized. There are soldiers. There's tension. The border guards on both sides don't talk to each other. All of the crossings are closed between Poland and Belarus.
1: Oh, really? Even the legal crossings?
0: Yeah, all of the legal crossings are Hmm. closed. Interesting. There's only a rail for crucial, critical commerce, right. and even that's kind of a, a tense issue. I mean, the bike ride that they do annually, the border guards on both sides that they for years have always done is canceled. Hmm. You know, they're they're not doing even the bike ride anymore. and They're not communicating at all anymore by orders from their respective government. So that is a situation that is very much worth watching, especially because you mentioned Finland we're seeing Russia weaponize migration on the Finnish border mm-hmm. sending emigrants over there on purpose trying to create a mass migration situation as retaliation for support for the Ukrainians against the Russians and it's very tense up there very worth watching and if it sparks off you know readers of mine and you know people who are listening to this should know that it will be because of Donald Tusk tweaking this one policy about pushbacks. That is the key ingredient to keeping things all quiet on that Western front. If he pushes that button, that's all it's going to take.
1: And again, you didn't get up to Finland, but what Russia's doing there, they're not Russians trying to get into Finland. They're, They're essentially allowing people from the Middle East and elsewhere to make their way through Russia to get into the EU. There was a book about this kind of thing called Weapons of Mass Migration and uh, you know it was a similar thing that Castro did to us in 1980, the Mariel Boatlift. So this is, a, you know, this is a phenomenon that happens around the world and it only really works to the extent it works if the receiving countries, whether the US or the EU, basically allow it to happen. Because, you know, if they control their borders and like you said, push people back or in other words, if there's a way to prevent people from getting away with illegal immigration, then it doesn't really happen. And that takes away a potent tool that the adversaries of those countries have. But it's a a weapon, as it were, that only works if we let it work. So- Another place you went to was Bosnia, and you wrote some about this. Like I said, you have a video that you produced and articles in several publications The American Mind, I think The National Interest, and elsewhere. We'll have li- links to all those. But you also went to Bosnia, and you uh, led that off with kind of a hairy incident you uh, had when you encountered some smugglers and some illegal aliens. So, what did you see in Bosnia? What's going on there?
0: Right. Well, so Bosnia is uh, kind of ground zero for what's called the Western Balkan Route. In 2015, 2016, we saw hundreds of thousands of immigrants just pouring up through that route, right through Hungary, and then west into Austria and Germany and France and everywhere else. And that lasted all the way up until the Hungarians said, we're not coming through our territory and doing this to us. And they put up a a big, long fence And instituted aggressive pushback policies Mm -hmm. so that it, for the most part, shut down the Balkan route. In about 2015, it took a few weeks. Austria followed suit because the traffic then just moved to try to go around the the wall. Right, And so Slovenia built a fence and Austria built some fencing. And so it it really, the Balkan route kind of died off and Mm -hmm. people got stuck behind Croatia, in Bosnia. Uh. There were thousands of them there, and they just could not progress forward, and that was kind of where the story ended. But that's not the case anymore. The Balkan route is on fire now. There are just hundreds of thousands pouring through the Balkan route, and primarily through Bosnia. And the makeup of that, the demographic and the nationality makeup, is... Primarily, like the top nationality are going to be Syrians, hmm. and they're young Syrian males. Now, I was told about this, but when I was, I didn't actually, it was kind of hard to see because a lot of them are, are sort of on the, on the run, they're on the move. You can see them in some of the UN camps that are set up in Bosnia, which I visited, one in uh, near Bihać called the Lipa camp, and met a bunch of Afghans there. Algerians, and so forth. But the top nationality are Syrians. And I was driving with my translator just outside Sarajevo, and we were passing a gas station, and I spotted probably 20 or 30 of them right in the process of transferring with their smugglers from one set of cars to another set. Mm -hmm. And so maybe stupidly, I just sort of impulsively said, oh, pull over, let's go Let's go get, I see they're Syrians, you could tell. Or they're probably Syrians anyway, and I wanted to meet some of these Syrians, so we pulled over and I just sort of looked it into them, you know, with my uh, camera rolling and talking to them, trying to engage them, where are you from? And sure enough, they were all from Syria, but their smugglers weren't. Their smugglers <laughs> were that were there were kind of Caucasian-looking Serbs. I guess they were Serbs or maybe they were Bosnians, but right. probably Bosnian Serbs. And they did not like that I was doing this filming and trying to talk and tried to get my phone, my phone away from me. This was kind of a a hazard of the job sometimes. And as I wrote in the piece, you know, it was kind of fight or flight time and I chose flight. I, I choose flight every time. And, you know, I shut the car door and they swung it back open demanding the phone and I shut it back. And then we squealed out of there and got away. But, Not before I was able to get some pretty good photo and video, which you will be able to see some of in our uh, video report Mm -hmm. that will be published on the site, and uh, some of the photos have already been published in my work. But the point that I was even trying to make in writing about the reopening of the Balkan route is that the last time we saw this number of Syrians crossing from Turkey and Syria up north through to the Western, the interior European Union countries, Mm -hmm. we saw that quite a few of them committed very bloody, heinous terror attacks, really from one end of the European Union to another. Right. My point of that story was to remind people that that happened and who did it. Not all of the terrorists that struck in Europe from the Balkan route were Syrians, but probably about half of them were, or people that came out of Syria who were fighting with ISIS, they right. were ISIS people that were fighting in Syria. And they are on the move again. I did get a hold of a UN report. It was shared to me by the IOM. They were interested enough to do a study of why these Syrians were coming and who they were. And most of them, are an average age of 27, unmarried, single, strong, and probably mostly um, economic migrants. I'm not saying that they're all terrorists or anything like that. But the reason why they're coming is because, for a couple of things, one is that Slovenia voted in a liberal government that decided to no longer do pushback policies behind its fence. They had a fence that was working fine, and they just decided, you know, we're migrant-friendly here. We're doing asylum. So that opened the way around Hungary's fence for the first time in quite a few years. Hmm. And a second thing that happened was that Croatia in January of 2023 became part of the borderless Schengen zone right, and abandoned all of their borders with Slovenia that meant that if you could get through bosnia and then through croatia a very thin corridor you were in slovenia and slovenia was taking all comers so there was this traffic constantly pouring through bosnia into slovenia now the european union this is i thought this was interesting because they won't say so publicly that they hate this mm-hmm. because an election is there are elections coming up but they somehow pressured the Croatian government to start doing pushbacks. Oh, I see. And I went to an area of western Croatia, you know, kind of on the Dalmatian coast, not right. far from the Dalmatian coast. Because that's the thin, narrow corridor, It is called the Karlovac area, where the immigrants coming through Bosnia just had to somehow get past the Croatian border guards and police. Who had been surged all through the area with paddy wagons? If they could slip them, they would just be in Slovenia in, a, in pretty short order, a couple of days on the on the ground. Right. So I spent quite a bit of time on the Croatian side of the Bosnian border with the cops in the countryside. You know, they were surging all over the place. They would deny it that anything unusual was happening because they're not supposed to. Do pushbacks? I see uh, at the border. Pushbacks in Europe are illegal, or they've been ruled against by the by EU courts. You know, I know Poland and Hungary are still doing it, but they're in big trouble with all the EU countries for doing those pushbacks. So now Croatia is doing these pushbacks, but the point is, is that that's why the Balkan route is open. You just had this liberal government and a couple of other little tweaks, and boom, they were. They were just pouring through by the tens of thousands, probably the hundreds of thousands. 2024 is going to be even worse. And a lot of them are these Syrians and Afghans. I met a lot of Moroccans and Algerians coming through there. They all know that the the Slovenia game. Interesting. I just kind of point out that I wouldn't be surprised if Europe is going to suffer terror attacks in the fairly near future.
1: I mean, if we get a new administration, we might be sort of uh, dialing down our border disaster while Europe dials its up. That'll be uh interesting to see. I don't envy them. but and just on a kind of uh, point of interest, you, when you got started in the journalism business, you were in Bosnia then as well, right? You were covering the Balkan Wars. This is now whatever this is, 30 years ago, something like that
0: yeah i'm i'm dated uh, but yeah it's true and i had i had it, it was a little bit of a sentimental journey for me personally just because you know i spent about a year covering the conflict in bosnia when it was really raging i mean it was peaked out everybody just killing and the city of sarajevo was under siege it was ringed by serb gunners and as a journalist i could get in there and out on the un c130 cargo planes that were delivering food, you know, UN
2: mm-hmm.
0: humanitarian aid, and you could get in and out. But I the last time I, I was in there was in July of 1993. Yes, I'm old. <laughs> but it was just very interesting to go see the city at peace and to, you know, visit a lot of the um, areas when I could recognize that it's a very different looking now than it was there. And then especially to go to the side of the city. Where they were shooting at me all the time. Right. Uh, to just be over on that side. It's really interesting. Uh, but I think that the, the most disconcerting part of it was that they have these museums about the siege. Mm-hmm. And that I was like living experiences that are now worthy of being in a museum. <laughs> you know,
2: where, yeah. Well, you know, we're all getting older. Like, God, really? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: So thanks we are going to have the video that you took produced along with our uh, magician multimedia director Brian Griffith and we're, when we do that we're going to have links to the articles there's three articles you wrote one about Poland one about the flow of Syrians and then one if I remember correctly sort of more generally about the you know our borders back opening in Europe the
0: Balkan route.
1: Right. So those will all be up certainly by the time you hear this uh, podcast, so hopefully people will take a look at it. And I appreciate your coming in, Todd, and we will certainly have you back. Thank you. And finally, uh, I just wanted to say a few words about what's going on here in Washington. Earlier this week, the Homeland Security Committee in the House of Representatives approved the Articles of Impeachment and now are sending it to the floor for the whole House to vote on it to determine whether the House of Representatives as a body will vote to impeach DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. And the votes expected next week, which would be February 6th, apparently. We'll see what happens with that. I have to say, even though impeachment of a cabinet secretary hasn't happened since the 19th century, if anyone warrants it, it certainly is Secretary Mayorkas. The other big thing that's been happening is the Senate negotiations over a possible border deal. There's been a lot of talk about it, but it's all been leaks. There's no actual legislative language, so everybody's kind of talking uh, about uh, an amorphous product, but of elements that have been reported, which may or may not be in whatever final deal, if there even is one, some of them actually are very useful and necessary, like raising the bar for the what's called the credible fear interview. It's the screening interview to see whether an illegal alien will even be allowed to apply for asylum. And it's a very low bar now. They're talking about raising it. And there are some other provisions in there that make sense. There are others that really don't. And ultimately though, you got to step back in thinking about this negotiation in the Senate. Why would any legislation make any difference? Because the administration has proven for three years now that it is uninterested in limiting illegal immigration. That's what the whole impeachment issue is about for DHS Secretary Mayorkas. They've refused to use the authorities they have. In fact, they rolled back the, all the policies that the Trump administration had put in place. The situation at the border exploded in their face as they were warned would happen by the outgoing Trump officials back in. End of 2016, early 2017. And now, only now somebody has looked up and realized there's a presidential election coming up and decided, you know, sort of smacked their foreheads like that old ad about I should have had a V8. It's like, wow, I should have enforced the border. The administration has zero credibility on enforcing the border and giving them more authorities at some price that would, you know, because the Democrats would exact some price to pass a bill like this. It just doesn't seem to me sensible because the administration has got to first prove that it's credible, that it's actually interested in enforcing the border. And the president could do that, I mean, you know, sort of make a 180 and start turning people back at the border. Heck, they could start by not cutting the Texas razor wire anymore and actually working with Texas to stop people from crossing instead of actively promoting illegal immigration, which is what this administration is doing. But it seems to me that until they prove that they're actually using the authority they have now under current law, are in good faith trying to do what the Immigration and Nationality Act requires, which is that there should be zero illegal immigration, never reach that, but that's the goal. That's not this administration's goal and until they change their policies and actually demonstrate. That that's what they want to do. They have uh, with good reason, no credibility on enforcing the border, and no reason that there should be compromises made in order to pass some kind of legislation, since this is not really an issue so far. The administration may prove us wrong, but this' is not an issue where Republicans and Democrats are, you know, on, on sort of either side of the 50-yard line, and they can have a compromise and split the difference. Under this administration, the people running immigration, the appointees in Homeland Security, clearly do not believe in the legitimacy of immigration law itself. This is not a question of what's the best approach, what are the best tactics that will result in the you know, most effective outcome. They don't agree on what the outcome should be. They don't believe that the federal government should aim for zero illegal immigration, that, that would, that's wrong. And Until that changes, and it could change, but I'm skeptical, but until that changes, why should there be any compromises made to get some kind of border bill just basically for the sake of saying that you passed a border bill? So anyway, we'll see. I'm skeptical that anything will come out of these Senate negotiations, but if it does, it's going to have to be a lot different and a lot better than what we've heard so far if it's going to have any Likelihood of actually impacting the level of the flow of illegal immigrants across the border. That's it for this episode of Parsing Immigration Policy. This is Mark Krikorian, Executive Director of the Center. You can always write us at centercis.org at with comments, complaints, ideas for future interviews or future podcasts. And uh, if your podcast platform allows you to rate, or review the podcast, please. We'd appreciate it. That helps a lot. And in the meantime, this is Mark Corian signing off and hope you tune in next week.